And I ask you to keep your Bibles open as we go to the text. I want to um, more or less skim through the text and uh, look at the big picture. And there's another thing I'd like you to do, seeing my time's gone on me, put your watches away. Don't look at it. But before we read from God's word, let's pray. Father, we come to your word. We recognize that it's the truth. And we pray that you would open the eyes of our minds so that we might grasp what you have to say to us through your word this morning, that we might see the Lord Jesus in it and his finished work and what he has accomplished on behalf of his people. So bless us, we pray, encourage us this morning and convict us and we pray that through it all you will receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Reading Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seems to, uh, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in the heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast arising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is 
the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Amen. In any situation of war or terrorism, it's vital that we know who the enemy is and what they plan to do, where to find them, perhaps, who is behind it, and so on. It's difficult to take out the enemy if you know nothing about them and their strategies. Our passage today helps us identify the enemy of God's people, the enemy of the church, of the Lord Jesus. It's one thing to know that Satan attacks the church, but it's just as important to know how he attempts to do so, <clears throat> how he attempts to destroy the church, how he attempts to destroy God's people, what means does he use, and how he goes about doing it. Uh, we saw in chapter 12, didn't we, that God's people has a great accuser who accuses them before God day and night. We read in verse 17 that the dragon, or Satan, who was enraged at the woman, went off to make war against her seed, or her children, that is, those who belong to Jesus, the church of the Lord Jesus. And here today in chapter 13, our attention is brought, about, uh, is brought to the fact that uh, Satan uses the beast and how he goes about doing it. We are reminded of the opposition the church faces from different sources. And this chapter highlights the two beasts who are Satan's agent, uh, agents, whom he uses to try and achieve his purposes. Now there's been all sorts of interpretations in regards to this chapter, regarding the identity of the beasts and so on. They are, more, they are among the most enigmatic parts of the book and much ink has been spilled regarding it. But I want to look at what John says in regard to these two beasts firstly. Firstly the beast from the sea and then come to the beast from the earth. And so stay with me as I run through the text. Firstly the beast of the sea. Thank you Sam if you can bring that up please. What are we told about the beast of the sea? We're told it had seven heads and ten horns each with a crown. Now, in reading that immediately, your mind would be taken back to Daniel chapter 7, which was read previously. There the prophet sees four great beasts that come up from the sea, one like a lion, one like a bear, and one like a leopard, the fourth beast being indescribable. It was terrible, powerful, and very strong. It also had ten horns, like the beast in our text here in chapter 13. And here on each side of the beast's head, John saw a name that blasphemed God. Notice also that he derives his power and authority from the dragon. We looked at the dragon in the last chapter when we saw um, that it related to Satan. And the beast's authority, we are told, is over people, tribes, language, and nation. And they worship him. Verse 4. One of the beast's heads suffered a fatal wound from which it was miraculously healed, verse 3. And the outcome was that the, uh, the world was so astonished at this healing 
that it followed the beast. The beast was allowed to blaspheme God, the place he dwells, it's heaven, and his people. He makes war against the church, verse 7. But notice what the text says in all of this. You probably didn't realize that as we read through the text. Verse 5, for example, he was given a mouth to utter proud words. He was given power to make war. He was given authority and so on. In other words, this is controlled authority. He doesn't have free reign. It's under the authority or the sovereignty of an almighty God. And what's more, it's not going to be forever, the text tells us. There's a limit to his freedom. He cannot go on forever or as long as he likes. He enjoys his freedom, but it's freedom within confines. And a freedom that will come to an end. Verse 5 highlights this. In other words, his days are numbered. The beast was given power to make war with the saints and to conquer them for 42 months. And we looked at the, that phrase, 42 months, over the last few months as we went through the first few chapters. So that's what we are told about the beast in verse 1 to 10. I've tried to summarize it. But what does it mean? And in seeking to understand what the text is saying, the question that I've always posed and which we should grapple with as we come to the text is what does the text say to its original readers? What does the text say to John, for example, and the church of John's time? And we've seen that the churches of John's time was in a crisis. They were in a crisis due to the pressure to conform to emperor worship and idol worship. And if they weren't to do that, then they would face persecution. And the text tells us that the beast spoke blasphemous words against God and slandered his name. Now, if you know the history of the time in which John writes, you will realize that Roman emperors often assumed the, title, uh, the, the titles of deity. For example, Domitian uh, made emperor worship compulsory and he gave his, uh, himself the name Lord and God. Lord and God. And that's blasphemy, isn't it? It's also slanderous because only God is divine. And I'm speaking about the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice also in verse 2 that the beast resembled a leopard. He had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The beast has ten horns and seven heads. Once again, Daniel chapter 7 is in view. The four beasts in Daniel, what happens, what's happening here is that the four beasts of Daniel are applied to the beast of this chapter as one beast. In Daniel, the lion represented Babylon, the bear the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard Greece, and the fourth beast being Rome. In other words, they represent governments. The beast in our text receives his power and authority from the dragon or Satan. And so the dragon or Satan works through the beast seeking to deceive the world through anti-Christian governments, through false religion, through worldly philosophies and values, worldly pleasures and so on. That's part of what the text is seeking to highlight. And so for the church of, uh, of John's time, 
the beast with the seven heads would have related to the Roman Empire. Daniel's fourth beast had ten horns, also relating to Rome. For the people of John's time, that's how they would have seen it. Rome was called the Seven Mountains because it was established on seven hills. So the seven heads of the beast is referring to the seven hills or mountains. You see, Rome ruled with an iron fist at that time, persecuting the church and blaspheming God's name by seeing itself as having divine prerogatives. This is the Roman Empire that's referred to as Babylon the Great, and we'll get there in, Rome, uh, in chapter 18. In other words, the beast represents a political state. And behind the Roman Empire stands Satan himself because the beast is his agent. Verse 2 tells us that. The text also tells us that the beast receives a fatal wound and then to everyone's amazement, this wound is miraculously healed. He has been resurrected from the dead, as it were. Now again, there has been a lot of ink spilled over this verse 3. There are those who maintain that the Roman Empire, although dead, will one day be revived and come to power. They cite it from what followed after Nero's death, where the empire did go through what could be termed as a fatal wound, because in one year three, empire, uh, three emperors came to power and were deposed. Nero died on June the 9th in AD 68, and many believed that he would return. Civil war was rampant as well, but the emperors which followed brought back stability uh, into the kingdom. It went through a resurrection, as it were, and went on to great heights, dominating the countries and kingdoms under its power. So there are those who see verse 3 as referring to that time in history. And that's one view. But there's another view that the wounding of the beast refers to the destruction of the empire in AD 476, and its resurrection or revival again in AD 554. That's another view. But the problem with that view is that if John is referring specifically to that period, it would have no meaning to his readers who would have been long dead and gone by then. What I believe this uh, is saying, verse 3 is saying, and which others, uh, which most of uh, the scholars believe also, is that the Roman Empire, like all the kingdoms of this world, is also subject to rising and falling simply because that's the nature of such kingdoms, isn't it? They rise and they fall, and at times they keep coming back to life in different forms. They suffer a fatal wound, so to speak, to use the words of the text, but then they are resurrected for a while as well. We live in a world where nations and people seek to dominate others in an effort to obtain power and control. And their efforts may flourish for a while, but only for a while. Scan history and you'll realize that. We've seen that with Babylon, haven't we, in the Old Testament? Babylon came to power and then they fell. And then came Persia and Greece and Rome. Look at Nazi Germany and so many of the so-called superpowers 
closer to our time. They rise and they fall, and some may come back to life for a while. So the beast can be any government or individual, like Nero, working through a government to destroy God's work, or seek to destroy, I should say, God's work and his kingdom. And so, for example, Nazi Germany, sending Jews to the gas chamber, anti-God, anti-gospel, the world with its abortion laws, gender dysphoria. These are things that the beast seeks to promote. Any anti-God, any anti-gospel laws is a manifestation of the beast. And so to sum up, the symbol here can be interpreted as making a point, not just about Rome, but any evil and oppressive government that seeks to ignore God and go against godly principles, seeking to destroy his kingdom and his loyal subjects. The beast from the sea, the Roman Empire in the early church, or any pagan empire could create a society that was and is spiritually attractive but pagan and blasphemous to the core. And so in belonging to the kingdom of this world and not following Christ and his kingdom, they are in fact worshipping the dragon. Why? Because the beast or the evil kingdom is the agent of the dragon. Now there are those who maintain that this beast is the Antichrist. What can we say about that? And I'll say more about it in a moment. And I believe there is a connection between the beast and the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness whom Paul speaks about. They appear to be the same figure, be it an individual or an institution, and I'll say more about it in a moment. But what I can say about the Antichrist is that the title Antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. Rather, it appears five times in 1 and 2 John. And there John refers to what he says is the last hour. And that many antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that this is the last hour. In other words, the appearance of the antichrist tells us that we live in the last hour. So John is saying that the first century Christians also lived in what he refers to as the last hour, as we do today. And he goes on to give, uh, gives us the, and give us the means by which we can recognize the Antichrist. Because he says that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. Because in doing so, he denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 2, 22. Every spirit that refuses to acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So although John speaks of this beast figure in Revelation and his satanic rebellion against Jesus and his kingdom, he wants his readers, you and I, to know that the activity and the spirit of the Antichrist is already present because we live in the last hour. We live in the last days. So it's appropriate to apply Antichrist language to the beast of Revelation. As long as we are aware of those truths from John's letters. Hold on to that and I'll come to it in a moment.
But here in our text, John says to this, that to this beast is given the power to make war against the saints and to conquer them and given authority over people of every tribe, people, language, and nation. Verse 7. Now speaking spiritually, this beast has no power over God's people as they belong to the one who is Lord over all. Rather, the power he speaks about that's given to this beast can relate to Christian persecution, which the beast brings to bear upon the church. And we heard about that from our mission speakers this morning. And that's been the case throughout history, hasn't it? God's people have faced persecution in one form or another as Satan incites people to persecute the church. Churches face many trials, many sufferings at the hand of evil rulers and governments. And as I've said before, there will come a time of a heightened persecution prior to the return of Christ when God's people will be put to the test through suffering and persecution. This does not mean that the beast or the dragon has sovereign reign over God's people or his kingdom. All that is happening here in the text is under God's sovereign control. We live and we go through trials of life in the kingdom of Christ, knowing that Jesus is Lord and that the day will come when he rescues his people from the world which worships the beast, as verse 8 tells us. And so, my friends, we live in the already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has already broken through our world in the redemptive work of Jesus, but we await our final redemption when Jesus comes again. The dragon is a defeated foe, even though it might appear to us that he is supreme in the affairs of this world. Who is like the beast, says verse 4. Who can make war against him? It appears that he is sovereign, doesn't it? The pagan inhabitants of the world of John's time didn't just fear the empire, they loved it and they worshipped it. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, says verse 8. All, of course, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Worsight. So we've seen that this first beast is political. Now if the first beast is political, the second is religious. Thanks, Sam. Notice secondly, the beast out of the earth, verse 11 to 18. Just briefly what's, what we are told about him, he is like a lamb in appearance, but his speech is like a dragon. He has lamb clothing and he looks harmless. The second beast, in looking like a lamb, appears to be like the Christ. Later on in the book of Revelation, he will be called the false prophet in chapter 16 and in chapter 19. So it's telling us, doesn't it, isn't it, that there is a contradiction between appearance and reality in regards to this beast from the earth. He looks harmless but his speech is deceiving. Notice also that he performs miraculous signs in order to deceive. One way he does this is to command the people of the world to construct an image of the beast and he gives the image breath. Verse 15. And so the second beast has the power to anim animate 
or give life to the image of the first beast. And that was not something foreign during the time in which John was writing Revelation. I say that because the ancients believed the statues spoke and performed miracles. The gods and demons behind the statues used them as a channel to communicate with humans and work miracles. And that's why they had idols. It's because they believed the person was in the idol. And so the second beast led people to worship the first beast through this image that was set up of the first beast. As a witness to the first beast, the beast of the earth promotes worship of the first beast. Here's why we maintain that with the second beast, the focus is religious. You might have to go home and read all this again. It's, it's pretty confusing. There is worship, there is signs and wonders, and there is speech. He is referred to, as I said, as the false prophet, chapter 16. And here's why many see, as false, many see this as false religion designed to deceive. And this beast, or false prophet, we are told, forces everyone to have the mark of the beast on their hand or forehead. And this mark is the name of the beast or the number of his name, 666. The last verse says it is the number of a man. And if I have a dollar for every time someone has put a name onto that person or that um, number, I'll be a very rich man. Many names have been suggested for him or for it or the Antichrist because there is religious activity attached to this beast or antichrist, there are those who maintain that it's a religious figure. During the Reformation, men like Luther and Calvin uh, pointed, it, uh, pointed to the Pope to be the antichrist. Our confession also cites that. In the 20th century, some have identified him to be Stalin or uh, Mussolini or Hitler. However, as we've seen before, and I've said this before, we need to recognize that numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic, aren't they? For example, the number seven stands for perfection. In other words, six is the number representing human imperfection. It is man against God. And so 666 is the trinity of sixes that falls short of the trinity of seven, if I could put it that way. The trinity of sixes is a parody of the trinity, an unholy trinity. It points to their ungodliness. Having said that, the text reveals little of the meaning of 666, so it would not be wise for us to speculate beyond what we are told. But remembering that 666 is the number associated with the false prophet, and it speaks of everything that's false, that's anti-God, and anti-gospel. Now let's come back to a question I'm sure that's in your minds and that is to try and clarify if there's any connection between the beast, the antichrist and the man of lawlessness. I believe there is a connection between them and as I said before we need to constantly ask the question what does it mean to John and to the first century readers? 
We cannot just seek to run with revelation, seeking to interpret it for our day and time. God's word relates firstly to those whom it was written to, for his church right up to our time and the church that is yet to come in the days ahead. And the first thing we recognize is that these figures like the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and the beasts related to the horrible persecution at the hands of the Jews and the Romans to God's people, of God's people. That may be why John says in his letter that the spirit of the Antichrist was already in the world. Paul says the man of lawlessness is already at work. The most significant persecution of the church at that time was through Nero. It began in AD 64 and Nero suicided at the age of 31 in AD 68. And you might know some of the things that Nero did. He began the great fire and he blamed the Christians for it. He had Peter and Paul executed. He killed his family members, including his wife. People spoke of him as the destroyer of the human race, the poison of the world. He had his statues set up for worship and Nero was nicknamed the beast. So without a doubt, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness was seen by the first century church as being Nero. Subsequently, there have been others who say that the Antichrist would be a type of Nero, someone like Nero in its manifestations. But the question remains as to whether there is one Antichrist or many, as John tells us in his letter. Is it a person or is it an institution? The word anti, of course, means against or in place of. So it's speaking of a person or persons or institution that's in opposition to Christ or who seeks to replace Christ with a false substitute. In fact, that John, the, the fact that John tells us that there is already, uh, that there already are and there will be many antichrists and the spirit of antichrist in the world tells us that the early church was already confronted with this opposition to Christ both through Nero, the Roman government, and the Jews as well. In persecuting the Christians, they were antichrist or those in opposition to Christ. So also with what Paul tells us about the man of lawlessness, he opposes Christ and exalts himself above all that is God and claims the right to be worshipped. Paul tells us that he is already at work, but he is also being restrained. So do you see the connection between the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the beast that's mentioned in our text? They are all in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom, both individuals and political institutions. They appear to be the same figure, be it as an individual or an institution. And so it may very well be that the beast is an individual figure working through an institution, whether political or otherwise. We've seen it in history. We will continue to see it now and in the future, whether to an individual, an institution, or both. So that's the beast, the antichrist, and the man of lawlessness. But more importantly, what does the text tell us by way of application for us today? 
Just two areas and then I'm through. First, I want to point out that and look at the big picture. And that is that there are two kingdoms in our world. The kingdom of the beast of the or the dragon and the kingdom of Christ, which the beast seeks to destroy. Or to use a biblical term, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We've seen that the beast is given power and authority to make war against the saints and to conquer them, referring to the persecution of the church or the people of God. And the first and most important truth by way of application is that we need to make sure that we are those who belong to the kingdom of Christ. Or to use the words of our text to make sure that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. A simple application, but very profound. Because if your name is not recorded there, you belong to the kingdom of the dragon. Verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all except those whose names are written in the book of life. So let me ask, what influence does the beast have in your life? You may not follow him or give him credence in your life, but what influence does he have in your life? Verse 5, for example, says, he speaks blasphemous words, and he does that through people, does he not? Yes, we will say, I will never follow the beast. I will never worship him. But as we've read, he sets up every kind of idolatry. And that says to me that he would put it out there that we have the right to have whatever we want. The idols of our time. Enjoy life now, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yes, you can be a follower of Jesus, but don't get too serious about it. I mean, this life is all you got, isn't it? You see, he's the great deceiver, isn't he? So in deception, he would say, don't get carried away with all this stuff about Jesus and following him too seriously. You, can get, you only get one shot at this life, so make the best of it. Have a foot in both camps. Live for yourself. Look after the number one person. Don't worry about anyone else. Make sure you're bu building a little nest egg for yourself so that you can put your feet up, enjoy life, because that is what life is all about. Isn't that what we hear today? However, Jesus says, live for eternal things. Invest in people and things which pay dividend in my kingdom. The work of missions, for example. Be a blessing to those in need. Give and it will be given you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Seek first my kingdom and its righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you. So who do you seek to follow? Which kingdom do you want to be in? To belong to the kingdom of light is to not take on the values of the kingdom of darkness. Do we trust the beast, the deceiver who seeks to devour and whose end is destruction? Or do we trust Jesus, the ruler and king who reigns above and who rewards his people with eternal life? Do we show the beast's kingdom values in our lives? Or do we show king, the kingdom of light values in our life? 
The beast says, live it up, store up. It's all about you and your little kingdom. That's the deception he brings, the false salvation he offers. Because to belong to the kingdom of light means you belong to the Lamb and you want to please him by living with his priorities and his values. I mean, the text tells us, doesn't it, that people are impressed by him. He is very impressive. They say of the first beast, who is like the beast? In other words, who can be compared to him? But that's not all. They go on to say, who can make war against him? Well, the answer here is that it is, there is a God with whom the beast cannot be compared with. Because this God is incomparable. He says to the prophet Isaiah, who will you compare me to? Who? There is none like him. The one who has defeated the beast and whose power the beast will succumb to. As Moses declared in Exodus 15, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is a god like you, pardoning the sin and overlooking the crimes of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in grace, says Micah. Micah 7, verse 18. Wow, he delights in grace. That's the issue, isn't it? It's not who is like the beast, because he has been dealt with on the cross. His destiny has been, has been secured. The one we should listen to and take notice of is the God who has defeated the dragon, the God who has defeated the beast through his son Jesus on the cross, because there is none like him. Nothing or no one in the entire universe can be compared to him. We could search for all eternity long and find there is none like him. And this God says that those who don't belong to his son will not find their names in the Lamb's book of life. That they will be destroyed and suffer the pains of hell for all eternity. That's the God we should give heed to. And he delights in grace. So my friends, don't be deceived by the beast, but come to God through Jesus, because he is the God who delights in grace. He will receive you with open arms. And then finally, the truth about the second beast. We told he not only leads people to worship the first beast, but he also looks like a lamb. This beast is the false prophet whose focus is religious. He performs miraculous signs to deceive. In other words, he deceives people, leading them into false religion, which looks like the real deal. He performs signs and wonders and captures the minds and hearts of people. In other words, it's false religion designed to deceive. That's his portfolio. My friends, the lesson here is that we are not to be taken in by what we see. That we trust only what we read and hear that comes from the Word of God. You know, there are so many people who name themselves Christian who are gullible individuals when it comes to trusting their eyes and what they see. So many who have been sucked in by false Christianity because they've been taken by what they see, so-called miracles and signs and wonders and so on and so forth. We see it in the signs and wonders movement around the world, which deceives people into thinking that this is the real deal when it comes to Christianity. 
And if you can experience these miracles in your life, you are up on a upper shelf there. If you don't, then you're on a bottom rung. And you're not being what God intends you to be. What's that doing? It's taking away from the all-sufficiency of Christ, isn't it? It's adding to the gospel. The Bible calls on God's people to not be deceived. And the reason for it is because the Lord knows how easy it is to be sucked in by what we see and what is appealing to the eyes rather than obedience to God's word. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expresses, expressly says that in later, later times some will come, some will depart from the fight by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. That's strong language, isn't it? Devoting themselves. 2 Corinthians 11 For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of life. That's the issue, isn't it? The beast looks like the lamb. You know, he or an institution isn't going to come to you and say, hello, I'm the beast from Revelation 13, and this is my agenda. Not so. He is the great deceiver, and he works through any way he chooses in order to deceive God's people. And that can be even through the church and its teachings, its programs, and some of the stuff it promotes. It can look like authentic gospel-based stuff and even appeal to the senses and the emotions, but behind it is the beast of Revelation 13. Paul is speaking in that passage I quoted from in 2 Corinthians about some super apostles, and where were they found? Out in the community? No, they were found in the church. Not in the government, or in the media, or in the nightclubs, or in secular institutions. No, they were in the church. And that's where the beast is to be active. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he can destroy the work of Christ and lead God's people astray, then the way to do it would be through the church working against God's people. Today the person that follows the Antichrist is also the person who rejects the truth, rejects absolute truth, those who see everything as relative. This is the spirit of the beast from the earth, a distinguishing, a distinguishing feature of the false prophet. So, we sum up by saying, be alert to what you hear and see that goes around in the name of Christianity. Don't be sucked in by the so-called hype the signs and wonders movement that is current today. My friends, test everything by God's word. Which leads me to say that we should be people of discernment. The whole chapter points to that truth as it tells us of Satan's modus operandi, his particular way of doing things. And so we should both prepare ourselves and plead with the Lord to give us a discerning mind. The scripture calls on every believer to be discerning. But examine everything carefully, says Paul. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. John himself says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And they're not just out there, they're in the church as well. Unfortunately, there are many in the church who don't or cannot seem to measure what they hear and engage in with the teaching of God's word. They tend to follow their emotions or whatever current fad is going on or is going around. And yet the key to living an uncom un uncompromising life, a life pleasing to God, a life that not that's not deceived by the beast, lies in your ability to be discerning in every area that you're faced with in life. And the way we equip ourselves is this, that we know our Bibles. It's as simple as that. That we give ourselves to reading and studying the scripture. Give time each day to spend in God's word. Asking the spirit to help you understand it and apply it to your life. My friends, God has given us minds, use it. Don't be gullible. Don't get sucked in into anything that looks like Christianity and ever so spiritual, be it music, charismatic preachers, and so on. So there we have it. I trust you don't see the happenings of this chapter as being only during the great tribulation as some future time if you're of that persuasion. Yes, these things may come in a heightened sense towards the end near the coming of Christ. But as we've seen, the things spoken of in Revelation are to be expected between the first and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, we live in the last days and these things are relevant for us today. The lie that Satan would have us believe is to walk away and say to ourselves, well, those truths are not relevant for today because they refer to a time that is yet to come. May the Spirit prevent us from such deception. And may God grant us wisdom and discernment in these things. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us today through your word. And we've considered many things this morning. We pray that we might not only remember them, but that you, through your grace, would grant us the discernment in seeking to live our lives for your glory. So, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.